welcome to the Midlife Manifesto podcast. I'm Leslie Ellis and this is the show where through the stories of my wonderful friends, we celebrate and commiserate, we share the ups and the downs and the challenges and opportunities that midlife brings. Today on the podcast, I have my lovely and very talented friend, Kate Steele. Hello, Kate. Hello. Hi. I'm sorry we're not doing this in person. I know we planned to do it in person and then all of this stuff happened. So uh, good to at least be doing it virtually. Yeah. By this stuff, we mean the COVID-19 lockdown. We do. (laughs) We do. I was actually on a train on the way down to London to record this podcast when the COVID-19 thing hit, didn't it? And we went to cancel. I know we did. And I had to do a crisis management call for work as well. So that was it. Everything was off. Yeah. 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 But we're sussing this kind of virtual world out. We're doing all right. We are. (laughs) So Kate is the Executive Communications Director at Microsoft, would I be right? You would, it sounds very grand, there's a few of us knocking about, so so I'm not the, the. with a capital T, um, I'm one of the, yeah. <laughs> okay, and you live in London? I do, yeah, I live in North London. And you travel uh, all over the world? Uh, up until up until recently, yes. So up until lockdown, I'd been to uh, I'd been to the states. I've been to Vegas and Seattle. I'd been to Mumbai and Bangalore in India. I'd I'd gone, done my usual commute to Paris, and I'd also managed to get in a trip to Sydney and also to the New Forest. So that was me up until up until sort of mid-March. So that's this year. So far. That's this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's this My year. My goodness. We probably need to do another podcast about how to cope with jet lag, Kate. <laughs> you uh, the expert. I'm definitely good at that and I'm really good at packing. I am I'm mm. absolutely the queen of the carry-on. So yes, if, if and when we actually get allowed to fly again, I'm your woman for how to roll, don't fold. That's the trick. Aha. Uh-huh. Interesting. So Kate probably is the only person I know who has also traveled on a private jet. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to say purely for work purposes and think of it entirely as a flying office. So um, all of those images you have of, of some kind of idea of glamour, it really is those constant Wi-Fi. And there's a table you can fully open your laptop up on. And so basically, that's what you're doing. There's no films. There's no, no entertainment in the back of the seat. So it's pretty much you working and being fed, which is nice. Um, and, the, uh, and the loo's very nice. But apart from that, that's it. So no silk sheets and circular bed or any of that? Oh, my God, no. I think you've been... <laughs> I think you've been watching like Rocket Man or something. It doesn't look like something that Elton John travels in, that's for sure. <laughs> no, I'm sort of a bit disappointed, Kate. Yeah, sorry. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, think, think of quite a ni- nice office, uh, just thousands of feet above the ground, and that's really what it's like. You have destroyed my dream. I'm so sorry. If I were a rock star, I'm sure it would be very, very different. Um, <laughs> But clearly, I'm not. <laughs> so, Kate, what I normally do is talk about mm. how we met, how we know each other. So, I'll yeah. hand that over to you. 
Yeah, gosh, so I was I was thinking about this. So I I we met originally in the brownies and the guides, didn't we? Before we then went to the same secondary school. We did. So we, both, we ended up at Pudsey Grangefield, but I knew you from from the brownie and the guides days, from from church parades and brownie camps and guide camps. I think I had I was trying to find there was a picture of us somewhere which I was trying to find with some other friends as well of us all sitting in a tent which we'd had to put up ourselves it was like this really old like second world war tent and um the place was covered in sheep muck and one of our friends had got it on a stick and was trying to sort of throw it yeah so that that was the that was sort of the 70s early 80s for me really yeah that was that weekend was hell for me. I mean, it I was I, awful. I came to that as an experienced and seasoned camper. Right, yeah, I always camped. But that tent had no gra- sewn in ground sheets. No, so no anything no. could just crawl no. in under the. <laughs> it was no, there was no ground sheet. You had to build what they called a gadget to put your rucksacks on. So you had to construct and do square lashing. Some kind of, I remember having to do that and I was never very good at that at the best of times. So I think everything collapsed in the middle of the night. Um, there was one instance, I don't think it was that one, where a horse peed up against the side of the tent and, and because there was no ground sheet, that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> My outstanding memory from that weekend is having to clean the minging toilets. Oh, they were just they, dreadful. Oh, they why? were absolutely, I think it was supposed to be character building. I don't yeah. know. There was there were lots of things we were doing which had we been sort of set adrift uh, onto an island and and had to kind of survive. If it was kind of Bear Grylls territory, it might have worked. But we were living in Pudsey, and so <laughs> I didn't I didn't quite get why we were being encouraged to do that. <laughs> yeah. Although you know, with lockdown, I'm doing a lot of loo cleaning. I mean, who isn't? It's like you know, bleachy floors wiping crumbs off countertops all of that stuff so maybe maybe it turned out all right in the end maybe so I'm, I'm happy to say that my toilets will never be that disgusting oh no, <laughs> god no 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 don't get me wrong N- nor <laughs> nor is mine <laughs> so also um i will point out that kate's mum was my french teacher she was that's right <laughs> yes how is your french poor okay. <laughs> but my kids I've managed to convince them that I'm good at French. If if what you did was then means that when you travel, you can use a few phrases and you can ask for the bill and you can figure out where the swimming pool is. I don't think that's a bad thing. Sort of yeah. thirty years later, I, I, oh, I would take either. that. I would take that as a win. Actually, it's okay. like me me working out how long to cook a ham is like I actually use algebra. And I never thought I would do it. But when you're trying to work out, you know, ham mathematics, like how much does it weigh? How much are you cooking it per uh, X hundred grams times by 30 minutes for the sizzle times? I'm like, my God, I'm actually using what I was taught at school. Do you not? Do you not? Have you not heard of Google? (laughs) No, no, no. Um, No, I work it out myself. I'm sure I've got some kind of it's basically every every Christmas I do my I do my ham mathematics and I'm always like wildly proud of what I've done. So ham mathematics, find... I love that. Yeah. yeah that's you see, the, anyway. I just I just go on the BBC food website and there's a roasting no. calculator on there, Kate. No, don't 
spoiled my oh, I did not know that I did not okay I was going to show you a picture of my hand maths but I won't do it now because I was so proud of it I actually took a picture of it, <laughs> working it out so, I love that I love yeah. that yeah okay so Kate you um you have your career has, has been quite spectacular for a, a girl from a state secondary school in West Yorkshire. Yes. To somebody who is an expert in your field, who travels mm. around the world. And I have to say, you're probably the most successful person from our year group at school that I know. And um, so I'm just interested in how your career kind of started how it progressed sure. I think I'm interested in has it been linear has it has it been straightforward have there been pitfalls sure um well so a um uh it, it's really nice to hear I'm not sure I, I, I well I think define success so for starters it's like what 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 I love about being in touch with everybody I went to school with is that um I think everybody seems happy and everybody's you know, everybody's achieved stuff. Um, so I guess success in terms of looking at, you know, how things have changed or how far you traveled. Yeah. But I also think there's, you know, but I also think there's huge success in, you know, having a lovely family and a nice home and doing a job that you, that you're proud of, or even a job that you don't love that much, but in a, it enables you to spend time doing the stuff you love. Mm-hmm. So I always think that's, that's, so that's the kind of, precursor to it no it hasn't been linear it really hasn't been linear and I think you and I were talking about this the other day I I worry that um, a lot of people now you know you're talking about your kids a lot, a lot of people now who are entering the job market or just going into education starting to think about what they want to do we sort of sell them this line that everything's linear if you do x y will happen like this progress will all follow in this lovely flow which is just not true. I don't think it ever has been, uh, except for maybe a few very lucky people. And also what that does is it doesn't make you very adaptive to change. So if you do X and Y doesn't happen, then how do you cope with that? And, and it took me a while to work that out. So, you know, when I left university, I wanted to be a journalist. I visioned myself sort of, I know, writing for The Guardian and I'd done some work experience in radio. So I thought I might work in radio for. And I left university uh, during a recession. It was a big recession. I think lots of people kind of forget about it. But the early 90s, there weren't, you, you, you'd had the whole kind of, hollowing out of 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 sort of um heavy industry in the 80s and then in the 90s you you, early 90s you had this recession and there there weren't jobs and so i'm walking out sort of this shiny bright graduate going well you know i went to cambridge i'm pretty smart it's just there just weren't weren't the jobs that were that were out there so that felt like a slap in the face so i ended up doing a stint at Harrods selling cakes, which um, my, 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 my grandparents ran a, a, a sort of sweet shop and news agent. So I guess that was kind of picking up on the family business. I was selling sweets, very expensive sweets to lots of people who came into Harrods. Uh, famous, non-famous, rude and charming, you name it, you get it. Um, <laughs> we're having to wear a straw hat. And I do remember turning up and, you know, shoveling chocolates into a box and and wearing a straw boater and this ridiculous jacket and thinking why did I bother going to university you know what <laughs> what was the what was the point of that <laughs> um 
and then I ended up uh, picking up a job in a bookstore, Waterstones, which was kind of more me and I got a few, few days part time, loved it. And in parallel, I was doing bits and pieces of radio. So I was doing lots of work for free, which I think a lot, lot of people do. And again, mm. if you're in the creative industries, I think it's a big problem if you don't if you don't have you know maybe bank of mom and dad to support you I think mm-hmm. that's a, a big challenge um, but also at the time London was not as expensive to live in and there was lots of creative stuff going on so in your 20s you found yourself making friends with people who were creating little radio stations or you know putting on plays or um, creating a magazine and doing book reviews and so actually that to me was where I was getting a lot of my, I was investing a lot of my passion and getting, I'm really, really enjoying it. So I was sort of just about staying up, keep my head above water and paying the rent. But I was also working with bunches of people who I'm still friends with on, you know, pop-up radio stations. So, so I worked on some which went on to win radio licenses and I hear people now on the radio that I used to work with. And then there were others which were a bit strange. I remember doing a feminist radio station, which is um, quite, quite, quite kind of intense, quite, quite serious. I'm a good feminist and I, well, probably a bad feminist, but I'm definitely a feminist. But this was all a little bit sort of straight, straight faced. And I can't remember what it's called, Femme FM or something anyway. So <laughs> name. yeah, it was a good name. So I remember doing a whole bunch of, you know, a whole bunch of that stuff, like in my spare time, um, did a radio show with Graham Norton. I remember negotiating with his agent to pay him the grand fee of absolutely nothing. <laughs> and, and he agreed to do it because he needed the exposure. So at the time he was doing like gigs for six people um and and so uh, so i so i worked with i worked with him and there's this very bizarre thing i've got a tape somewhere where um i was i was co-presenting with graham at the time because we couldn't find anybody else to do it for that week and we interviewed alistair darling who ended up being chancellor of the exchequer so somewhere there's this tape of me graham and and, and alistair um sort of chatting away about about nothing and uh yeah anyway so that's yeah anyway where did what happened to both of them that's what I asked myself where are they now (laughs) where are they now yeah um so I was doing all of that and then in the bookshop um a job came up at the bookshop where I was you know manning the till and working in the sort of drama and poetry section all very nice to to do marketing and and PR which I hadn't really thought about and then one of my bosses at the time who I'm still friends with recommended that I apply for the job and I kind of thought well why not got the job and then suddenly was you know running literary events which was um, brilliant and fun and thinking what do the windows look like at Christmas you had a lot of autonomy and again there were a ton of us in our 20s who were all quite creative people none of whom could get proper jobs in inverted commas Mm -hmm. so we sort of put our energies into putting on events, making the shop windows look utterly beautiful, probably being quite rude to customers. It was a little bit like high fidelity, but you know, the, so, so if someone came in and asked for Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance or like a Charles Bukowski novel, you'd be like, uh-huh. Okay, great. And if someone came in and asked for something a bit trashy, you'd be a bit sniffy. So I think we were quite dreadful actually. I don't think we were, I don't think we were really good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's very high fidelity. Did that and then and then got asked by someone I was doing a literary event with that he was working at a PR agency and did I want to join the PR agency? And at the time, I'd never heard of 
PR. I don't think AppFab was on. Maybe it was, but I don't think I knew what it was. Um, didn't know what an agency was um, and was kind of enjoying my life, even though I was a bit skinned. It was, it was fun. I had a lot of good friends. But he offered me this salary and I just thought, oh, my God, I could afford a Veda shampoo. <laughs> and if I do this, yeah, it's not quite being a journalist. I'm not sure what it is. If I do it, I could just, my hair would smell so nice. So I made this massive career pivot, sort of basically going, journalism, I'm, I, you know, I can't afford to keep doing stuff for free. I'm loving it, but I just, I just can't hang around and live in London and do this. And, and just thought, yes, I would like really nice smelling hair. So, so why don't I, why don't I say yes to this job? And, and so you know, my entire career has basically been built on the fact that I wanted to buy fancy shampoo. That's it. <laughs> that career defining moment. Yeah, that was the career. That was that was that was the pivotal career defining moment was give up trying to be a journalist, earn some money because you can buy nice shampoo. Well, it sounds like as good a reason as any, Kate. I think I think so. <laughs> but but on that, but I do worry that you know it all gets very X factor with work nowadays. And you you know, and when you're interviewing people who are coming out of university in their twenties, and you're like, you know, what's your passion? Why do you want this job? And frankly, I sort of don't mind why someone wants the job. I just want them to be good at it and 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 kind of curious. And I think we 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 force people into yeah auditioning for the X factor. When in fact, that's probably the last reason you should want to choose someone for a job. Mm -hmm. I'm always sort of deeply suspicious about people who are super passionate about, you know, what they do for a living. I love it. I love my job. I really do. And I, and I get huge amounts of satisfaction and validation from it. But I think, you know, when you're coming out of university at 21 or if you left school at 18, how can you possibly know? Mm. Because you've not experienced life, have you? No, no, of course not. No. Mm, mm. Sorry, we've gone, a, we've gone a bit off piste. We can, we can get back onto the... Well, this is excellent advice. Okay. Um, my daughter has finished university. She hands the last essay in next yeah. Friday. Um, and Congratulations. She's kind of, I know, I know. And she's kind of in this situation now. She's ready to unleash herself on the world. Yeah. With not much of a clue about what she wants to do. But that's okay. I think that's, <clears throat> I think it's really fine because I think as long as you're kind of flexible about opportunities that come your way, trying to, to trying to sort of take them, I think that's, I think that's a really good thing. And if you see yourself as being on this very linear progression, all you'll ever be is be really disappointed if you don't get to the next stage. Mm -hmm. And when in fact, kind of who set that goal in the first place? You know, yeah. maybe, maybe you did, maybe your parents did, maybe you did it when you were 12 and said I'm going to be an ex when I grow up I think I did that to myself you know I was thinking yeah I want to be a journalist but actually yeah I've I've had such a rich working life by doing something I'd never heard of and initially didn't really want to do interesting so during that so, so you do think that your uh, propensity to embrace opportunities and mm -hmm. to be flexible and open mm -hmm. to change has been one of the factors that has enabled you to to progress because although it's not been linear it mm -hmm. has you know it's had it's a progressed yeah, yeah it has 
Yeah, I think so. Well, I, I think it's a weird mixture of a couple of things. So I definitely think being open to new opportunities. I remember joining an agency again when there was a after the dot com bust. So there was another economic downturn. I think we often again, we often conveniently forget these things and we sort of re- rewrite history and think about, you know, think about a few good years. And then you go back and say, well, you know, the, there are lots of times when people are having a hard time. And I joined an agency and I'd got this great role. And then um and then, and then, and then, technology sort of, you know, that the bubble burst, mm-hmm. and companies were going to the wall, and I was told, well, you know, we don't really have a job for you. We've hired you, but we don't have a job for you unless you want to join our healthcare department. So you're thinking, well, okay, I'd quite like to pay the rent. So, yeah, I'll go and do that. So <clears throat> the pivoting has been, I think, because I've been, I've been open to it. That's for sure. But I think it's also some of it's just been down to sort of being practical mm. and and pragmatic and and kind of assessing um the economic realities of the situation as well and saying okay well then fine i'll do that mm-hmm. so have you made i'm assuming you've made some really good decisions during your career <clears throat> have yeah. you made some <clears throat> some ones that you think have been bad decisions yeah decisions? oh gosh yes absolutely so so the i will work for shampoo was the very good decision um moving into working to technology PR was another good decision as as well saying yes to that again when I'm not particularly techie those were two things that have taken me all over the world I think there have been times when I've definitely played it too safe I've definitely taken a couple of roles where I've sort of shunted myself sideways um, in order to probably stay within the environment where I was rather than saying you know what it's time to leave it's time to look and that's partly because, you know, I've, I've, I've enjoyed the people I've worked with. I've enjoyed the clients I worked with. You know, there's been lots of positive reasons, but there have also been reasons where I think I've, I've probably played it too safe. Mm. And, and maybe that's about not having, not having as much confidence in myself as I thought I did. Uh, maybe it's inertia. It's, for, it's hard looking for you know maybe it's sometimes we can be a little bit risk averse depending yeah, on what our, I think so, what our situation is and yes I think so know, that's not necessarily down to confidence it's just that risk assessment that we do and the sometimes yeah. when when our choices reflect our attitude to risk totally no I think you're absolutely right there so I think I think there have been times when I've been more risk averse and so I've sort of plateaued for a bit where I was, which again is not necessarily a bad thing because then you put more energies into your life outside of work or you start to find other things about work that you enjoy. But I've, you know, I've definitely watched other people have trajectories where you've been like, oh my goodness, look at that. Mm. Why is that not happening to me? I think also I'm not a, I've got better, but I've not always been the smartest political player. And I think in any work environment, politics politics come into play i've not i've not been in highly politicized work environments i think they can be very tough for toxic people. sometimes yeah yeah no absolutely absolutely and i haven't had any of that but definitely i've perhaps been less politically astute than some of my peers mm-hmm. and again i think maybe that's maybe that's to do with background um maybe that's to do with yeah definitely upbringing don't think i was brought up to be sort of be sort of Machiavellian at all um and I think again probably being brought up where if you're brought up by you know teachers then 
that idea of academic progression is sort of if you do x y will happen mm -hmm. you know if yeah, you yeah. pass the test you will you will go on to this and so and it's not hey look if you make friends with the right people then you'll pass the exam because that's mm. not <laughs> that's not, not quite how it works so i think maybe there's been an element of that so when you alluded a little bit to background so do yeah. you find obviously being a, a state educated west mm -hmm. yorkshire woman yes are you in the minority uh depends where so in my current company yeah because there's 140,000 people around the world so it would be it would be a bit weird if there were but but am i a minority uh no insofar as there are people with with hugely diverse backgrounds so mm -hmm. you have you have a lot of people who've been state educated a lot of people who um haven't been predominantly state educated though um uh, but it's a but 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 it's quite a very diverse working environment. Mm -hmm. So actually, um, I'm the only I'm the only Brit in my team. So never mind Yorkshire. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm the only Brit on the team, and that's nice. But it's also really interesting because I work with uh, I work with people from France, from Belgium, from the Netherlands, from um, the States from Colombia, from India, from Australia. So we're a real sort of, uh, yeah, we're a real diverse bunch. Um, and so actually that becomes more about you're all together as a team and you see fewer of the, the differences and it's more about you because we're all so different. We've yeah, all yeah, completely different backgrounds. So I love that. I love mm -hmm. the fact and, you, and, you're, and you're trying to navigate it. But yes, for sure, absolutely. So definitely university there were not that many state educated people at university mm -hmm. and if they were they tended to come from the grammar school system so there weren't that many people from from a comprehensive school mm -hmm. that was um so that was probably the first environment where i no, you, you noticed the difference and 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 not in a way where it was poor me at all um the one thing i would say that i noticed was around expectations so a lot of people that i came across at university um their the educational establishment the environment they came from had high expectations put no barriers on on them and therefore they there was no reason to question why they were somewhere or what they were doing Mm -hmm. and so i share examples so i was really you know lucky mum was a teacher um i enjoyed school I was good at it. I got tons of encouragement from my parents to, you know, to do well, but but not oppressive, not hanging over you and checking your homework. Mm -hmm. You know, you the expectation was you do it yourself, but it was a supportive environment to spend time reading or spend time doing homework, whatever. And I know that's not true for everybody. Yeah, yeah. But I, at all. But I do remember when I got the offer through from from Cambridge. Uh, and it was two A's and a B for A level. And I remember getting it and being very excited, but also thinking, okay, you know, it's, I'm going to have to work hard. My mom said, that's great, but you're going to have to work hard. Fine. And I remember bumping into a teacher and she said, you know, oh, have you heard? And I said, yes, I've, I've got, I've got an offer two A's and a B. And she went, don't get your hopes up. <gasps> oh, okay. Now, I mean, <laughs> any other school or, you know, you would think any other comprehensive where they had, 
somebody getting an offer from Cambridge you would think they'd be like what can we do to and I did and and she was really an anomaly there were tons of other teachers who were like right what can we do to help you to do this so Mm -hmm. I'm giving totally the wrong impression of school totally the wrong but the fact that someone would say that Mm. it it speaks volumes what signal does that send don't get your hopes up stay where you are yeah play it safe (laughs) play it safe Mm. and you just think not so not yeah not even not a practical okay it's going to be a big push but how can we get you to do it or not even a you know well done you know and give you like a day in the sun of being really happy about it and then go right now the hard work starts but to say that you just think well what else were you saying to other people Mm. if they're saying that to you right that's (laughs) pretty dreadful that's I think pretty dreadful. Expectation has been a huge thing. And I worked in education for a short time. Yeah. And I worked with children who were really disadvantaged. They were in the care system. And yeah. one of the things that we looked at was expectation. So yeah. there, there's evidence that children who have um, people around them that have high expectations of them, generally, it's a self fulfilling prophecy. They, totally. They, they do yeah. much better. The children yeah. that I were, were working with were from such disadvantaged backgrounds that nobody had any hope in hell of them achieving right. anything. Right, exactly. They're surrounded by that kind of, you know, it, it, again, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is. It is. It really is. And it's, and you, and you see it reinforced by, you know, it can be, it can be a family environment. It can be a school environment. It can be your wider community you're in. Um, and it's dreadful. And it, and it, and it, and it, so reductive in terms of what people can achieve I'm not saying I'm generally not going the other way where it's like everybody gets a gold star or you can be anything you want to be that's also rubbish Mm -hmm. I mean unfortunately you can't I mean you know there there are limitations on my international modeling career and winning a hundred meters gold at the Olympics I can't (laughs) weirdly I don't know why but anyway um so you know what you can't and so I but but I think it's finding that medium isn't it it's between it's between that kind of you know you can make it just live your dream um versus don't get your hopes up and you sort of want to find somewhere in the middle (laughs) where you're where you're encouraged to be yeah to be the best you can be Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting and and that I think is a is a and that I think is what my parents did it wasn't you'll be a superstar but I was always encouraged to be the best I could be and I think that's incredibly important I absolutely agree Kate and from my perspective obviously I remember you at school I remember from guides and um I remember you putting a play on so you were you were academic but not not always the most academic person no but you were creative and the biggest thing I remember about you is that you felt that your voice was important, mm-hmm. as important as everyone else's. Mm-hmm. And that was the difference between you and many of your peers, including yeah. me. And you had the balls to approach the staff, deliver them a script, encourage them to allow you to put that play on. And that's just something that even if I could have written a script, I've no idea whether I could or I couldn't, but I wouldn't. That's the difference. Yeah. Because I didn't believe that my voice was as 
important as the teacher's voices or maybe as your voice or as somebody else's voice because of the way that I was brought up in a traditional kind of environment slightly misogynistic mm-hmm. um my my dad's favorite saying was children should be seen and not heard right yeah I mean I was a big disappointment in that area I have to point out <laughs> good good for you <laughs> but I do believe that if you came from that environment where your voice you were expected to have a voice in your family environment then that yeah. creates a great foundation for yeah. the rest of life yeah I think I think that's incredibly insightful Uh, and I would agree and I I, you know we were sort of talking before this podcast and I don't think I'd sort of reflected on it as much as I should have done Um, but I absolutely agree I think I can trace I can trace a lot back to growing up in in an all-female household which kind Mm -hmm. of then says there are no limitations on gender because women are doing everything so you Mm -hmm. don't see you don't see any barriers but also absolutely that my mum really encouraged me to have a point of view from a very young age. Say, so not in that kind of tyranny of the child where the kid is, you know, the kid is ruling the roost and saying everything, not at all. But you you were expected slash allowed to have a point of view and to listen to other people and to listen to their point of view. But it was it was quite the reverse of seen and not heard, much to my grandmother's um dismay sometimes I have to say <laughs> she wasn't always thrilled about that she um yeah she was she was lovely but there were times I think when she really did want to go back to some kind of you know Ed- Edwardian way of bringing up children <laughs> that would have made her a little bit happier sometimes uh, with me and my sister sort of chirruping away with our very specific points of view on you know vegetarianism and, and women's rights and what was happening politically and ev- all of that other stuff yeah kudos to your mum though for kind of yeah yeah you know, no it was brilliant being the change maker yeah I, I think so no no I I, I mean that's that that was truly formative and I don't think I'd realized it until uh, as much until now until we spoke and I think that has taken me through life so when I rocked up at university I felt I did feel very intimidated by people who had but but at the same time I also felt I absolutely had a valid point of view and a voice Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. sort of stood me in good stead, even if sometimes you'd feel a little bit um, unsure or out of your depth, sort of academic and, uh, academically or socially, it, I, I still never felt I have no right to be mm-hmm. here and I have no right to say anything. And that and took me through work. And even in working environments where maybe I was the only woman in a meeting or I was the youngest person in a meeting, I've never lacked the confidence to have a point of view. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. I love that, Kate. And, you know, if I was to predict mm. who was going to go on to be a success from school, yeah. I would have more certainly predicted you in, in terms of um, academic and career success, mainly because of that. Yeah. Well, it's really, I mean, it, it's really nice of you to say that. I mean, I do in hindsight, though, look back at those plays and think, how did I persuade people to put them on? They were these, these sort of ridiculous extravaganzas with lots of terrible jokes in. And I think one time we, we got like, we even persuaded the local funeral directors to lend us a coffin. And we p- persuaded the PE teacher to jump out of the coffin dressed as Scylla Black. There was, there was like, there was a point to it. There really was a point to it. I don't think it was a very good play, but that was, 
you know, that was quite, that was the sort of big moment. Um, or have a friend of ours on stage smoking, pretending to be Barbie. You might remember <laughs> Nadine. We actually got permission to have her, have her have a cigarette on stage in the middle of school. I don't know how we managed to persuade people. I think when you say we, Kit, what yeah. were you? <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe. The, the only thing I remember getting told off for saying was putting the word bugger into something and then I got politely told by the headmistress that I would have to um, change that to forget so smoking was fine yeah fine 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 (laughs) death references are fine um fake plastic breasts were fine but not saying bugger on stage I guess what I'm interested in is you were naturally creative. That's just part of who you mm-hmm. are. How are you able to, and how does that help you in your current yeah. role? Yeah. Um, I still write a lot. I actually still feel that I get a lot of opportunity to be creative at work, which is which is really interesting. So I work for a big technology company. I work in... Uh, executive communications so so at a lot of sort of corporate with a capital c communications and also internal communications so you would you would think that that's not a very creative environment to be in but actually every day i'm writing something and what i write has to make people think something feel something and do something so you have to really understand people and you often have to find creative ways to to get people to respond to an email or a blog post or something so there's an element where every day I do feel I'm very creative with with language and I love that I've always loved writing so maybe I'm not writing these crazy plays with people jumping out of coffins but I am but I write every single day as part of my job which is a huge pleasure but also that there are times when I've been really creative, you know, throughout my career in terms of, you know, if you're working on a big communications campaign, you can really get together and you can really envisage, you know, what should that campaign look like? And I'm trying to find a sort of um, a good example. OK, so so last year I was writing, um, I was working with 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 my boss and the rest of the team on a on a, on a big speech for thousands of people, which was to to kick off a sales event. So, you know, on paper, that brief is, it's quite intense, but you could go, okay, that's not super creative, but we had to fill an arena. So you've got thousands of people in this massive arena in Las Vegas. So you're thinking about how can we tell the story creatively? We ended up getting Penn and Teller, who were doing a magic show down the road in Las Vegas, starting off on stage by putting... Uh, you know, putting this very senior executive into a box and doing a magic trick with him, and that at the end making him disappear in a puff of smoke, <laughs> and and throughout the whole session we were kind of weaving in these messages. So that felt quite creative at the time. So even when you're kind of saying, okay, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a speech for, for for a big sort of sales and marketing kickoff, I think if you can go, yeah, but it's actually in a arena show and it's actually um something that um needs to engage lots of people and i hasten to add this isn't just me 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 this was me working with lots of other people getting lots Mm -hmm. of input and suggestions and so it's never it's never the work of you know one creative genius it's always about coming together and bouncing ideas off people and then they get better 
but that was you know so I still feel like I have a big outlet for being quite creative at work mm -hmm. which is which is lovely yeah absolutely and I think a lot of people you know creativity is is such an important part of being a human yeah and sometimes you know we neglect that creative part of us but if you can bring that into your head yeah job, Totally. Brilliant. But I also think it's about, you know, I put Lippy on today and I'm sort of joking, but I think I think also sometimes it's about giving yourself permission to dress in a way that just gives you a little bit of a boost. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a creative act in itself. Mm -hmm. If all you do is sort of, you know, imagine yourself into some kind of character and go, well, today I'm going to be a successful person with lipstick on. Well, then lovely. That's that. That's a creative act. Or cooking. I love cooking. Cooking is a creative act. Yeah, yeah. Um, as well as a very practical way of feeding yourself decent food. So, so I think there's lots of lots of moments in time when you can be really creative, mm -hmm. or just or just bring a bit of yeah, just 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 bring a little bit of something that is not dullness and greyness. So says the woman in a grey jumper. Um, <laughs> but you know. Even I don't know. Even if it's just having a nice pen and a notebook or something, it. I think there are like small things you can do to inject a bit of individuality and creativity mm. into your into your day without mm -hmm. having to hire two crazy magicians to come and kick off a speech. Never apologise for going. Actually, I'm going to put put a nice dress on to go to a meeting you know sometimes I do remember sitting in an airport lounge working on my laptop and I'd come from a meeting so I was wearing this sort of summer dress and everything and surrounded by a sea of sort of either men in suits or men looking like overgrown babies so in sort of you know outsized shorts and ridiculous sort of t-shirts and stuff so they either looked like they were from the 1950s or they were you know, some kind of cartoon version of what they what they were like when they were 10. And I sort of sat in this dress and I thought, my God, I look like some hilarious sort of prom queen. If you took a picture <laughs> of this, there'd be sort of me in this dress and <laughs> surrounded by all these surrounded by all these blokes. But also, you know, here I am tapping away on a tapping away on a laptop. So um so definitely I think giving yourself permission. It doesn't it doesn't make you any less good at your job, it doesn't trivialise you, doesn't make you not be taken seriously. That's your personal expression of you being yourself. I think that leads us quite nicely into talking about how things are different now that you're in your midlife. So we're yes. both in our late forties. We are. Do you find that you're you're much more comfortable in expressing yourself as who you are now than you were when you were perhaps new to the industry when you were younger no the strange thing is I don't I think mm. I buck the trend I, I think in fact I think maybe it's gone slightly into reverse so I think I've always felt I had the right to have a, a voice so I think I'm probably I'm probably more confident now in terms of what I'm saying is probably maybe more accurate or correct because because of the experience um but i don't but i don't think that's ever ever changed from day one when i kind of rocked up in an office and and thought you know i have a comment to make on this um but i do think that i am less confident maybe about maybe about Mm, it's interesting. So because I work in communications, often what I do is I have to think about what are the consequences of so. So what is the impact of saying something going to be? 
So as an example, you know, I, a friend of mine reminded me of this the other day and I thought, my God, I wouldn't do that now. So when we were in our mid, mid-20s, uh, my best friend and I, we flew to America to visit another really good friend of ours. And it was like, it was my second, second like big trip. And we were squished together in these sort of terrible, <laughs> terrible seats on this really long journey to LA. But we didn't care. We were just really excited about going to LA. And we had loads of books and we got a gin and tonic and gosh, there was a film in the seat. So we were all very happy about that. We were just really just excited to be on the plane. But there was a little girl sitting behind me. She wasn't that little, actually. She must have been about eight or nine. And she would just kick, kick, kicking my seat. And, you know, I'd say, could you stop kicking my seat? Because, you know, it's a lot, 10 hours. It's a long way. Your seat. It's mm. a long way. It's not like you're going, okay, it's, she's tiny. It's 40 minutes to Amsterdam. I can, I can cope with that. I realize I'm going to sound like trying. But she was kick, kick, kicking. And so I turned around and said, could you mind stop kicking? She didn't stop kicking. And then I'd forgotten this, but my friend <laughs> Katrina reminded me. And I stuck my head over and said, if you do that again, I will grab hold of your foot and I will hold it for the rest of the journey. <laughs> and, so, and so she stopped kicking, surprisingly enough. But I thought, God, I wouldn't do that nowadays. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it because I think people would react in a really different way. I think I'd be looked on as this kind of dragon lady. I think they'd go, do you have kids? And I'd be like, you don't know what it's like. I think the way in which society responds to stuff is really different now. I think I would have thought someone's going to film me and they're going <laughs> to post, post this dreadful woman. Um, when actually, so I've massively overthought it. When actually, it should be a perfectly legitimate request to say to somebody, could you maybe not kick for 10 hours? Yeah. That, that, that seems like a perfectly fair thing to do which is please don't kick the back of my seat for 10 hours because it's going to drive me nuts and it's really uncomfortable but that's so I find that quite interesting I think this actually ties in with a conversation I was having with another friend of mine she was talking about and um, she's always been very political she was very very vocal and yeah. you know she has socialism running through her veins and it's only in midlife that she, she's a TV script writer, but she's also chair of the Writers Guild. So she's mm-hmm. kind of moved into politics, if you right. like. Yeah. And um, she said that she's much better at it now because she's able to um, temper her words. She's able to communicate with people who have opposing views in yes. a way that creates compromise. Yeah. And she couldn't have done that in her twenties. Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think you definitely do get that. You definitely, um, and I'm sure with her being a writer as well, you know, empathy, you know, un- understanding the motivation make, makes you a fantastic writer because you, because, because in order to create characters, you, you've got to understand what makes people tick and why mm-hmm. they, you know, why would they behave in a certain way? Why would they do? I think in a very limited way, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also thinking about that as well. As I said, it's you know, how, how do you get people to think something and how do you get them to do something? But yeah, I, I, I do think I've sort of t- tempered my self. Um, and, I'm so, and I'm slightly disappointed by that. <laughs> I'm slightly disappointed by that because I used to be, I used to be a bit bolder. 
And I'm wondering if it is a, it, it, partly I think it's a consequence of what I do for a living, but I'm wondering if it is also that consequence of, this, of, of a society we've been in where no one could put their head above the parapet because everybody has a really aggressive opinion and everybody's shouting you down. And, and fine, if you're kind of Teflon-y or you don't care, that's okay. But for a lot of us, we do. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if, you know, that whole kind of angry echo chamber slightly ragey stuff has made me step back i mean i know there's been huge discussions about you know women are um by far and away more aggressively attacked women and and and, um, minorities are far more aggressively attacked than anybody else on social media you know and cyclists prove it cyclists too um i know and then you know and that's all the data are all there to, to prove it uh I mean, Mary Beard is so interesting on this, on the silencing of women. You know, the academic... Mm, I do know Mary Beard. And and she wrote a brilliant, brilliant essay um, and then a really sort of short book. It's it's only about like 100 pages on how women have been silenced throughout history and how, you know, both both in terms of the literal sense of, you know, being, being... have a you know have your tongue cut out and you know in ancient greece or something some kind of really brutal terrible thing there through to you know through to being silenced by basically people just you know trolling you and piling on um and in a weird way she's kind of saying nothing is nothing has really changed um and but i but i do i do wonder if um had i been in my 20s and been emerging within the the kind of current environment whether i would have been quite as opinionated as i was and i think that's really sad i think mm. that's incredibly sad that i would probably not be do you feel that you you're no longer opinionated or do you just feel like you have found a more um effective way of communicating those opinions maybe yeah no i'm still massively i'm still massively opinionated well i think some of it is i have to so so you can break it down so i think having an opinion on things that are professional absolutely and i'm still there i think i have maybe walked away from being more opinionated sort of politically or socially partly because partly because the climate felt like it's so oppositional and so great mm-hmm. it, it sort of feels like and and I think I do I am more of a middle ground person anyway let's let's try yeah let's try and find that common ground and it's and it's felt for a while that that hasn't that hasn't really been the environment we find ourselves in mm-hmm. um which you know which I think is a real shame I mean yeah I've, I've got friends who've got very differing sort of political opinions and I know people from different sides of the spectrum I also think we're much more nuanced it's you know it's really reductive to say if you again if you believe x then you also believe y and z I I think that's that's just not true I think mm-hmm. we're much more complicated um in the same way that it's like you can be a feminist and and wear lipstick and dye your hair absolutely I think I think the way in which we sort of break down those categories are uh, are, just, are not true, and I would say a lot. Most of the people I know have nuance, and and sometimes they surprise you with their perspective, and you think, mm. "Oh, I wouldn't have thought that." But um, but yet it feels like we've got these kind of these frameworks set up where you have to fit rigidly with, with within them. Plus, I've never really liked sort of being able to fit into a box. It's always slightly annoyed me. 
do. I do remember one time sitting opposite Alan Bennett on the tube in London and I hid my copy of Grazia in a biography of Catherine the Great. Because <laughs> no, I thought, what, what would Alan Bennett think? Like, A, as if he was even looking at me anyway. And B, yeah, I mean, <laughs> why, why should I care? But okay, thought, how funny. Yeah, yeah. I'm so, surprised that Alan Bennett actually travels on tubes, to be fair. I, I haven't seen him for a while, but then I, I haven't been on the tube for a while because I've been avoiding it with all this stuff going on. So, mm. so it's still, still veer between being a sort of proud, you know, here I am reading Vogue and I still and I still enjoy it and get real pleasure out of it as well as some other sort of chewy stuff yeah mm, fabulous you were talking about the um you know the the nuances I yeah. have found as I've got older that I, I find it difficult to align myself with a specific political mm. ideology or ideal because my I look at the try and look at the whole picture, and there's never anyone who can fit that model no. that I've made yeah. myself. And I think a lot of us, as we get older, get like that, and it's a similar yeah. thing. I think we become more middling. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I would agree. I mean, I would agree with, and I, I certainly find that too. That the kind of extremes, I just think, well, there's nothing no there's nothing in it for me so and I think there's there is a bit I think as you get older where yeah you're you're naturally generally getting less extreme because you because you've had to make compromises Mm -hmm. because we all do because again you can start off with a great position and then you have to make compromises because you have to pay the rent or the mortgage or Mm -hmm. you have to I'm I'm not about saying I'm not saying you know you you completely get rid of all of your values I think you can you know your core values I would hope would would stay the same but I think how you're navigating things gets a bit it's a bit gray sometimes because yeah you you can't just stand on principles because there are Mm -hmm. other people relying on you and although I actually think I, I I think it's quite a female Yorkshire thing as well I think we're quite practical mm. I think I think Yorkshire women are actually quite okay roll up your sleeves get on with it which I guess you know had got my grandmother through you know two world wars yeah bandaging her brother's head when he came back from the first world war with you know damage to it and she was seven and she stood on a chair and she was the only one who um only one who he would let bandage his head Mm. and so there she was a seven-year-old not kicking the back of my chair on a flight but she was (laughs) she was bandaging her brother's head because he'd you know he'd been severely injured in the first world war um so i guess my grandmother's practicality and pragmatism was kind of hard won so, yeah yeah and 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 bad sound of it essential to get yeah, through what she had to i get think through. so i think so yeah she told a story of again during the during the second world war of um going into hospital for an operation and uh she was so ill it was an operation on her ear they couldn't evacuate her and then there was a big bombing raid in Leeds and all of the other patients in her ward were evacuated to safety but they thought it was more risk evacuating her than leaving her where she was so she was alone with a 15 year old nurse in Leeds General Infirmary as all the bombs dropped around Leeds and my grandma went into maternal mode and basically comforted the 15 year old nurse who was in bits and absolutely petrified oh, God. Um, because because 
that was the only practical response she could find. Mm. So, so I think a bit of that also, I think a bit of that, I think my grandmother was also a very strong character as I was growing up. And I, I think a bit of that rubbed off on me as well. I think so. Very practical, you know, get on with it, roll your sleeves up. Okay, well, this is what we've been dealt with. Um, and I think what sometimes... a great combination. Yeah, it was really, it was a really interesting combination, really, because you've got two very different generations. You have my mum who'd gone to university. So first in the family to go to university. So you had very different worldviews, mm. that's for sure. Very different views of what it was like to be female. Um, my mum was a terrible cook and hated cooking, whereas my grandmother baked, was like, you know, Mary Berry levels of baking, like every Friday. <laughs> yeah, so actually I think, kind of coming back, I think my, my grandmother was a huge influence on how mm. I approach stuff as well. Yeah, interesting. So, um, Kate, thank you so much for your time. Oh, I really you. loved your fascinating insights and stories. Now, I normally finish my podcast with a fact of the day, and I found mm -hmm. a fact of the day that you might already know, but I'm not sure. Okay. Um, but even if you don't, it's quite interesting. So did you know that um, in Japan, it, about a thousand years ago, a woman published what is thought to be the first ever novel? Do you know, I did not know that. I did not know that. I know about... Yay! Um, yay! No, that's brilliant. What was her name? I don't know what her name was, but the oh, book okay. was The Tale of Genji. Okay, I'm going to look that up because I know a bit about female novelists in, in the UK, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I did not know that. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's, that's me going to, you know, fall down a rabbit hole online and try and find various, <laughs> various other bits and pieces. No, brilliant. I love that. I love okay. that. Okay. So I'm going to go away now and practice my algebra so that I don't need Google BBC food anymore. No, exactly. <laughs> you don't need it. You don't need it for Christmas. I have to say thank you so much. It's been a, a real a, a treat. It's been a real treat to talk to you. And um and I, and I love the way you're driving conversations and thinking about conversations. You are, you're a natural interviewer and, and it's, um, well, it feels quite therapeutic now. That's great. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, thanks, Kate. That's so kind of you to say. Um, I've, I've enjoyed it too. I'm loving hearing the stories of my friends. Yeah. It's, it's just, I'm inspired by them. Um, th they just blow me away and um, you're no different. So when you volunteered to come on my podcast, because you were one of the first people to yeah. raise your hand and say, I'd like to be on it. I was like, yes, this is a coup. <laughs> so oh, I don't know about that. No, you're welcome. <laughs> so, right. Well, hopefully we get to catch up post all of the, all of the madness that's going on over, over a glass of fizz somewhere. Yes. Nice that would be fantastic here yeah, yeah. i would love yeah. that all right well listen take care and um yeah and be kind to me in the edit <laughs> i don't i don't want need to do a right lot i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> thank you bye thank you bye